This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Shinto, The Way Home, by Thomas Kasulis. It's a bit more academic than other texts I've recommended before, but I find the central question really fascinating. How do the various aspects of Shinto as a nature religion, or an imperial religion, or a folk religion, get reconciled in everyday practice? This is a very complex topic, and Kasulis handles it well. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. conclusion of the Second World War, Allied occupation planners disagreed on a lot of things. What was to be done with the Emperor? How would the far-reaching goals of democratization and demilitarization be carried out? There was one thing, however, that everyone agreed on. The national religious edifice of State Shinto had to be destroyed. The only problem, of course, was that it was somewhat unclear what that even meant. State Shinto had always been a catch-all term, and no one had a clear understanding of where the line between State Shinto and regular Shinto even was. Government support for religious organizations had to be ended, obviously. So did repression of religious groups. But would the Allies have to tear down state-established shrines like Yasukuni? How would they handle priests who were also licensed teachers? And what on earth were they going to do with the Emperor? In the end, responsibility for all of these decisions lay with the supreme commander for the Allied powers, General Douglas MacArthur. In his typical fashion, he cut straight through the debate and settled it. Three documents would be issued to settle the matter. The first was the Shinto Directive, issued by MacArthur's occupation government on December 15, 1945. It stripped fiscal support from the shrines and put limits on what they could teach. Specifically, it was now illegal to state that the emperor was superior to other rulers by virtue of his divine ancestry, or that Japan itself was superior to other nations by virtue of divine sanction. The emperor had previously gone to Issei Shrine to report to his imperial ancestors on public matters every year. So, for example, this year we accomplished this, we accomplished that, something like that. Now he was forbidden to do so, though he could still worship at the shrine as a private citizen. The second document was the so-called Declaration of Humanity made by Emperor Hirohito as part of a speech given on New Year's Day, 1946. In it, the Emperor said the following, the English, by the way, uses the royal we, The ties between us and our people have always stood upon mutual trust and affection. They do not depend on mere legends and myths. They are not predicated on the false conception that the emperor is divine, and that the Japanese people are superior to other races and fated to rule the world. 
At least, that's the official English translation, but there's still some ambiguity about the statement. You see, the word in Japanese that's translated as divine is Akitsunikami, which scholars like John Dower have suggested is closer to incarnation of a kami than simply divine person, which would be Arahitogami, kami manifested as person. This term, Arahitogami, was the one usually used to refer to the emperor. Thus, some scholars have argued that the emperor was renouncing the idea that he was some sort of avatar for Amaterasu, but he was not renouncing the idea that he had divine ancestry. Certainly, the emperor himself appears to have had some sympathy for this reading, as he is reputed to have said over and over again that he could not renounce the idea that he had a divine background. To my mind, however, the Emperor's opinion was not really what mattered. The people's opinion was, since if they didn't believe the whole thing was moot anyway. It appears they did not. Certainly the idea of a divine Emperor, currently, has no credibility in Japan outside of the diehards on the far right. The final nail in the coffin of what may or may not have been State Shinto was the new constitution, which removed all qualifiers from the freedom of religion, and prohibited the government from supporting any religious institution in any way. So what did this mean for the previous system? Well, again, obviously national support for the shrines vanished, and now they were back to having to support themselves from parishioner donations. This change included shrines that had always received some form of government support, like Issei or Yasukuni shrines. No one was safe from the drive to disestablish state support for religion. Some shrines did maintain limited ties with the imperial family. For example, the chief priest of Issei Shrine has always been a female member of the imperial clan, and that remains the case to this day. The position of Sai'o, or chief priestess, is jointly held by Ikeda Atsuko and Kuroda Sayako, the older sister and daughter, respectively, of the reigning emperor Akihito. However, technically neither woman is a member of the imperial family anymore. One of the other occupation reforms to the imperial institution was that only the emperor and his immediate family are allowed to retain imperial titles anymore. These ties also do not extend to monetary support beyond individual donations made by members of the imperial family as private citizens, which were hardly enough to keep the shrine afloat. So instead, shrines were forced to operate in the manner that churches, synagogues, and mosques do in the U.S., they had to build a devoted network of parishioners to support them. This was made somewhat easier by the fact that in the 1950s there was a boom in traditional Japanese local culture across the country. Everything from traditional shamisen music to local delicacies were suddenly all the rage as expressions of older, pre-imperial, more authentic Japanese culture. Shrines benefited from this a great deal, and local festivals became huge attractions. The more colorful, the better. Two of my favorites are the Kanamara Matsuri at Kaneyama Shrine in Kawasaki, and Hitorizumo, not really a festival, more of a folk tradition, at Oyamazumi Shrine in Ehime. To take the last first, the point of this festival is essentially to watch a sumo wrestler shadow box. He does a demonstration match against nothing at all. The theory is that he's wrestling the spirit of a rice plant, and if he wins, the harvest that year will be a good one. As for the Kanamara Matsuri, well, let's just say they interpreted the concept of a fertility symbol very literally, and you absolutely should not Google it if you're at your parents' house or on a public computer. Shrines were still able to get some money from the government, though, 
they just did it in a different way. They benefited from new programs designed to protect areas of historic significance. The government can give money to religious institutions if it's to preserve a valuable historic site. After all, European countries do it all the time. If you've been to Japan and wondered why seemingly every damn shrine you see is an important cultural artifact or a significant historical property or whatever, this is why. Sweet, sweet taxpayer dollars. As a whole, then, Shinto after World War II was radically different than what it had been ten years earlier. All of the three layers of Shinto were now supported by their parishioners, not by wealthy donors. All of the three layers of Shinto were now supported by parishioners, not by the government. Some of the Meiji period reforms remained in place, for example, the priesthood is now permanently professionalized, and a voluntary association of Shinto shrines, or Jinja Honcho, was established to mean something like the unity and hierarchy imposed by shrine organizations during the Meiji era. So I guess the short version would be that after the war, Shinto was less centralized than it had been during the war, but more centralized than it had been during the Edo period. The Association of Shinto Shrines, by the way, also has a strong political arm, the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership, or SAS, one of Japan's stronger political lobbies. Among its members, it counts none other than sitting Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, so as you can imagine, they're a pretty influential bunch. Now, I've been unable to find much data on how the shrines weathered the transition to independence or whether any shut down from lack of support, but it doesn't really seem likely. By this point, shrines were thoroughly embedded in public life, and I can't really see one having so few parishioners it can't even keep its doors open. However, if you're thinking that now, thanks to the American written constitution, we aren't going to be dealing with issues of religion and the state anymore, well, take another look at American politics. We sure as hell haven't come up with a permanent solution that keeps everyone happy, and neither have the Japanese. In particular, there were three big cases which brought the issue of Shinto and what relationship, if any, it could have with the government to the forefront. The first began in 1965 in Tsu City in Mie Prefecture to the southwest of Nagoya. The mayor of the city arranged for a Shinto priest to purify the grounds of a new city gymnasium and used public funds to do so. One of the city council members objecting to the decision sued the mayor on the grounds that the purification ceremony violated Article 20, enforcing the separation of church and state, and Article 89, preventing the government from giving money to a religious organization like a shrine in any official capacity, of the new constitution. The case eventually made its way before the Japanese Supreme Court. The court decided that while the ceremony technically did violate the concept of the separation of church and state, in practice, total separation of the two would be impractical and potentially undesirable. After all, it would mean an end to government assistance for things like religious schools or religious programs designed to help the needy, to say nothing of all the historic preservation money shrines were getting. In the end, it might even be discriminatory to totally enforce the separation of church and state, since then religious organizations would be unable to receive the government assistance that many other secular groups were entitled to. Using this as a starting point, the court then attempted to determine a good test for when the government violates Articles 20 and 89. It came up with the answer that the government exceeds those rules when its actions, quote, exceed reasonable limits, 
and when its actions have as their purpose some religious meaning, or the effect of the actions is to promote, subsidize, or conversely to interfere with or oppose religion. It is not enough that the practice of the activity is set by religion. The place of conduct, the average person's reaction to it, the actor's purpose in holding the ceremony, the existence and extent of religious significance, and the effect on the average person are all circumstances which should be considered to reach an objective judgment based on socially accepted ideas. Finally, the court found against the lawsuit because based on this test, the purification of the grounds of a gymnasium was not the government promotion of a religion. It wasn't like the priest went on to harangue the masses to believe harder or visit the shrine more. Cases 2 and 3, meanwhile, are all about Japan's most controversial Shinto shrine, Yasukuni. The second one is relatively straightforward, but presented a potentially awkward situation for the government. You see, after the Second World War, Yasukuni Shrine continued to operate, and those people enshrined during their war were not de-enshrined. In addition, in 1977, the board of Yasukuni Shrine agreed to enshrine 17 Class A war criminals who had qualified, so to speak, for the shrine due to wartime service, but had been denied enshrinement during the occupation for the very good reasons that a. they were convicted war criminals, and b. their bad leadership was the primary reason the shrine was now so crowded. I've been unable to totally figure out what motivated the decision. Everything I've read attributes it to a strong sense of nationalist feeling on the shrine board, and that certainly seems likely, but it's not definite. I can't say for sure what motivated the enshrinement decision. On the surface, this is reprehensible but reasonably straightforward. After the war, Yasukuni was a private institution, and as a private institution, it could do more or less as it pleased. However, Yasukuni was also the largest war memorial Japan had, and a lot of public figures, including the emperor, visited there to pay respects. I suppose the best analogy would be if Arlington National Cemetery here in the U.S. were controlled by an independent group of American ultranationalists who, say, arranged to have some of the perpetrators of heinous acts during the Indian Wars or the Philippine Insurrection buried on the grounds. The government would have to choose between ignoring its own war memorial or attempting to interfere in what was technically the business of an independent religious group. Once the enshrinement was announced, by the way, Visits by government officials stopped for several years. In particular, no member of the imperial family, including Hirohito himself, went back afterwards. Things were made even more complex because of something I didn't mention during the last show for lack of space. In each of Japan's 47 prefectures, there was also a branch shrine of Yasukuni called the Hokoksha, or National Protection Shrine. Some of these Hokoksha received support from local governments, justified by treating the shrines not as religious sites but as war memorials, meaning that tax dollars were technically going to shrines which housed war criminals. This situation simmered for a few years, both because for a while the government was careful to distance itself from it, and because understanding the scandalous nature of what had happened required an understanding of both Japanese politics and the nature of Shinto, which I suspect was beyond a lot of people outside of Japan. Still, it's blown up plenty in recent years, as evidenced by popping Yasukuni into a Google News search. The third case is to my mind the most interesting, though its beginning is very tragic. It started in 1968, 
when a lieutenant in the Japan Ground Self-Defense Forces named Nakaya Takafumi was killed in a car accident. His wife, Nakaya Yasuko, was a believing Christian, though he himself was not, and in accordance with her wishes as his next of kin, he was buried in their local church. In 1973, however, Nakaya Yasuko received some very upsetting news. After the war, the self-defense forces had been approached by Yasukuni with the offer to enshrine any SDF member killed while in active service, and the SDF had agreed. So, she received notice from the self-defense forces that since her husband had died while deployed, even if deployed was a pretty loose term for an army that didn't fight wars and never left Japan, he was to be enshrined in a local hokoksha, and thus in Yasukuni Shrine itself. Now, this is a pretty big deal for Christians, seeing as the enshrinement ceremony is fundamentally a form of deification, and thus breaks the second commandment, the one about having no other gods before me. You could probably make a case that it's straight up idolatry too, but I'll leave that for the theologians among you to debate. Miss Nakaya filed suit to prevent the enshrinement, and the resulting 15-year court battle ended in 1988, when the Supreme Court decided that since the petition of enshrinement was technically handled by an independent veterans group, the self-defense forces simply cooperated with them, the government had no right to intervene. Besides, they argued, allowing Shinto believers to venerate her husband had no impact on her. Religious toleration relied on mutual generosity, and she had to be generous towards their right to practice as they saw fit, just as they were generous to hers. Besides, the old argument was trotted out, is Shinto even really a religion? As you can imagine, this did not go over great with Japan's small but vocal Christian community, which saw the decision as an attack on their right to practice their religious traditions free of interference. However, all objections amounted to nothing. Nakaya Takfumi remains enshrined in Yasukuni to this day. Now, speaking of Yasukuni, the 1980s were also the period in which Japanese prime ministers and other government officials began visiting the shrine in an official capacity. So that means doing things like signing the shrine visitors register as, say, Nakasone Yasuhiro, prime minister of Japan. This is a perennial issue that comes up constantly in East Asian international relations, so it's worth talking about here. The Japanese stance about these visits has always been that they're about honoring those who died to protect the country and have nothing to do with honoring war criminals or glorifying the militarist past. It's just an unfortunate coincidence that 17 awful men happened to be enshrined in the same place as millions who gave their lives in patriotic service. The stance of much of the rest of East Asia has in turn always been that the war criminals are there whether you like it or not, and you're honoring them whether you want to or not, and after all, it wasn't like the average foot soldier in the Imperial Army in World War II had a squeaky clean conscience. It wasn't just the leadership that had a really disgraceful record. This issue has been getting increasingly toxic in the last few years, particularly as the ruling Liberal Democratic Party has developed a more nationalist bent. Now, some of you are probably thinking that the obvious solution is to build another war memorial that the Japanese government can control more directly. Such proposals have been floated for years and have gone nowhere owing to objections from the right, which is not particularly disposed to care what a bunch of foreigners think about how Japan honors its war dead, as well as disagreements over what form a new memorial would even take. Should it be a shrine? Can the government even do that anymore? Should the names of Korean and Taiwanese soldiers be included as well? Because there were quite a few of those, 
and we'll be talking about that in a later episode, by the way. So frankly, I don't see an alternative memorial happening anytime soon, though certainly I've been wrong before, and in this case, I would be more than happy to be wrong again. So that's post-war Shinto in a nutshell. The attempts to split Shinto away from the government have proven less than totally successful, and Japan's oldest maybe-a-religion religion remains a source of ambiguity and controversy. None of this, however, means it's not alright to enjoy Shinto for what it is. All religions get a bit crazy when political power is thrust their way, and after all, there's still a lot to respect and appreciate about Shinto belief. Way back some 60-odd episodes ago, I did an episode on the history of Kendo, and I feel that there's a lot of similarity here in how to approach these. As with Kendo, just because at some point in the past Shinto was manipulated to serve the interests of a bad regime, the practice itself is not inherently tainted as well. Still, questions about what Shinto is, what relationship it should have with the government, and what its role will be in Japan's future will be sources of confusion and strife in Japan for a long time yet. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week as we follow an ancient Chinese alchemist on his quest for immortality, which may or may not have landed him straight in the middle of Japan.